Chapter 10 of The Lair of the White Worm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Paul Johnson. The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Chapter 10 The Kite. On the following day, a little after four o'clock, Adam set out for mercy. He was home just as the clocks were striking six. He was pale and upset, but otherwise looked strong and alert. The old man summed up his appearance and manner thus, braced up for battle. Now, said Sir Nathaniel, and settled down to listen, looking at Adam steadily and listening attentively that he might miss nothing, even the inflection of a word. I found Leah and Mimi at home. Watford had been detained by business on the farm. Miss Watford received me as kindly as before. Mimi, too, seemed glad to see me. Mr. Caswell came soon after I arrived. That he, or someone on his behalf, must have been watching for me. He was followed closely by the negro, who was puffing hard as if he had been running, so it was probably he who watched. Mr. Caswell was very cool and collected, but there was more than unusually ironed look about his face that I did not like. However, we got on very well. He talked pleasantly on all sorts of questions. The nigger waited a while, and then disappeared, as on the other occasion. Mr. Caswell's eyes were as usually fixed on Leah. True, they seemed to be very deep and earnest, but there was no offence in them. Had it not been for the drawing down of the brows and the stern set of the jaws, I should not, at first, have noticed anything. But the stare, when presently it began, increased in intensity. I could see that Leah began to suffer from nervousness, as on the first occasion. But she carried herself bravely. However, the more nervous she grew, the harder Mr. Caswell stared. It was evident to me that he had come prepared for some sort of mesmic or hypnotic battle. After a while he began to throw glances round him, and then raised his hand, without letting either Leah or Mimi see the action. It was evidently intended to give some sign to the negro, for he came, in his usual stealthy way, quietly in by the hall door, which was open. Then Mr. Caswell's efforts at staring became intensified, and poor Leah's nervousness grew greater. Mimi, seeing that her cousin was distressed, came closer to her, as if to comfort or strengthen her with the consciousness of her presence. This evidently made a difficulty for Mr. Caswell, for his efforts, without appearing to get feebler, seemed less effective. This continued for a little while, to the gain of both Leah and Mimi. Then there was a diversion. Without word or apology the door opened, and Lady Arabella March entered the room. I had seen her coming through the great window. Without a word she crossed the room and stood beside Mr. Caswall. It really was very like a fight of a peculiar kind, and the longer it was sustained, the more earnest, the fiercer it grew. That combination of forces, the overlord, the white woman, and the black man, would have cost some, probably all of them, their lives in the southern states of America. To us it was simply horrible. But all that you can understand. This time, to go on, in sporting phrase, it was understood by all to be a fight to a finish. 
and the mixed group did not slacken a moment or relax their efforts. On Leah the strain began to tell disastrously. She grew pale, Apache pallor, which meant that her nerves were out of order. She trembled like an aspen, and though she struggled bravely, I noticed that her legs would hardly support her. A dozen times she seemed about to collapse in a faint, but each time, on catching sight of Mimi's eyes, she made a fresh struggle and pulled through. By now Mr. Caswell's face had lost its appearance of passivity. His eyes glowed with a fiery light. He was still the old Roman, in inflexibility of purpose, but grafted on the Roman was a new Berkshire fury. His companions in the baleful work seemed to have taken on something of his feeling. Lady Arabella looked like a soulless, pitiless being, not human, unless it revived old legends of transformed human beings who had lost their humanity in some transformation or in the sweep of natural savagery. As for the negro, well, I can only say that it was solely due to the self-restraint which you impressed on me that I did not wipe him out as he stood, without warning, without fair play, without a single one of the graces of life and death. Leah was silent in the helpless concentration of deadly fear. Mimi was all resolve and self-forgetfulness, so intent on the sole struggle in which she was engaged that there was no possibility of any other thought. As for myself, the bonds of will which held me inactive seemed like bands of steel which numbered all my faculties, except sight and hearing. We seemed fixed in an impasse. Something must happen, though the power of guessing was inactive. As in a dream, I saw Mimi's hand move restlessly, as if groping for something. Mechanically it touched that of Leah, and in that instant she was transformed. It was as if youth and strength entered afresh into something already dead to sensibility and intention, as if by inspiration she grasped the other's band with a force which blenched the knuckles. Her face suddenly flamed, as if some divine light shone through it. Her form expanded till it stood out majestically. Lifting her right hand, she stepped forward towards Caswall, and with a bold sweep of her arm seemed to drive some strange force towards him. Again and again was the gesture repeated, the man falling back from her at each moment. Towards the door he retreated, she following. There was a sound, as of the cooing sob of doves, which seemed to multiply and intensify with each second. The sound from the unseen source rose and rose as he retreated, till, finally, it swelled out in a triumphant peal, as she, with a fierce sweep of her arm, seemed to hurl something at her foe, and he, moving his hands blindly before his face, appeared to be swept through the doorway and out into the open sunlight. All at once my own faculties were fully restored. I could see and hear everything, and be fully conscious of what was going on. Even the figures of the baleful group were there, though dimly seen as through a veil, a shadowy veil. I saw Leah sink down in a swoon, and Mimi throw up her arms in a gesture of triumph. As I saw her through the great window, the sunshine flooded the landscape, which, however, was momentarily becoming eclipsed by an onrush of myriad birds. By the next morning daylight showed the actual danger which threatened. From every part of the eastern counties, 
Reports were received concerning the enormous immigration of birds. Experts were sending, on their own account, on behalf of learned societies, and through local and imperial governing bodies, reports dealing with the matter, and suggesting remedies. The reports, closer to home, were even more disturbing. All day long it would seem that the birds were coming thicker from all quarters. Doubtless many were going as well as coming, but the mass seemed never to get less. Each bird seemed to sound some note of fear, or anger, or seeking, and the whirling of wings never ceased nor lessened. The air was full of a muttered throb. No window or barrier could shut out the sound, till the ears of any listener became dulled by the ceaseless murmur. So monotonous it was, so cheerless, so disheartening, so melancholy, that all longed, but in vain, for any variety, no matter how terrible it might be. The second morning the reports from all the districts round were more alarming than ever. Farmers began to dread the coming of winter as they saw the dwindling of the timely fruitfulness of the earth. And as yet it was only a warning of evil, not the evil accomplished. The ground began to look bare whenever some passing sound temporarily frightened the birds. Edgar Caswall tortured his brain for a long time, unavailingly, to think of some means of getting rid of what he, as well as his neighbours, had come to regard as a plague of birds. At last he recalled a circumstance which promised a solution to the difficulty. The experience was of some years ago in China, far up-country, towards the headwaters of the Yangtze Kang where the smaller tributaries spread out in a sort of natural irrigation scheme to supply the wilderness of paddy-fields. It was at the time of the ripening rice, and the myriad of birds which came to feed on the coming crop was a serious menace, not only to the district, but to the country at large. The farmers, who were more or less afflicted with the same trouble every season, knew how to deal with it. They made a vast kite, which they caused to be flown over the centre spot of the incursion. The kite was shaped like a great hawk, and the moment it rose into the air the birds began to cower and to seek protection, and then to disappear. So long as the kite was flying overhead, the birds lay low, and the crop was saved. Accordingly, Caswell ordered his men to construct an immense kite, adhering as well as they could to the lines of the hawk. Then he and his men, with a sufficiency of cord, began to fly it high overhead. The experience of China was repeated. The moment the kite rose, the birds hid or sought shelter. The following morning the kite was still flying high. No bird was seen as far as the eye could reach from Castor Regis. But there followed in turn what proved an even worse evil. All the birds were cowed, their sounds stopped. Neither song nor chirp was heard. Silence seemed to have taken the place of the normal voices of bird life. But that was not all. The silence spread to all animals. The fear and restraint which brooded amongst the denizens of the air began to affect all life. Not only did the birds cease song or chirp, but the lowing of the cattle ceased in the fields, and the varied sounds of life died away. In place of all these things, was only a soundless gloom, more dreadful, more disheartening, more soul-killing than any concourse of sounds no matter how full of fear and dread. Pious individuals put up constant prayers for the relief of the intolerable solitude. 
after a little there were signs of universal depression, which those who ran might read. One and all, the faces of men and women seemed bereft of vitality, of interest, of thought, and, most of all, of hope. Men seemed to have lost the power of expression of their thoughts. The soundless air seemed to have the same effect as the universal darkness, when men gnawed their tongues with pain. From this infliction of silence there was no relief. Everything was affected. Gloom was the predominant note. Joy appeared to have passed away as a factor of life, and this creative impulse had nothing to take its place. That giant spot in the high air was a plague of evil influence. It seemed like a new misanthropic belief which had fallen on human beings, carrying with it the negation of all hope. After a few days, men began to grow desperate. Their very words, as well as their senses, seemed to be in chains. Edgar Caswell again tortured his brain to find any antidote or palliative of this greater evil than before. He would gladly have destroyed the kite, or caused its flying to cease, but the instant it was pulled down the birds rose up in even greater numbers. All those who depended in any way on agriculture sent pitiful protests to Castor Regis. It was strange indeed what influence that weird kite seemed to exercise. Even human beings were affected by it, as if both it and they were realities. As for the people at Mercy Farm, it was like a taste of actual death. Leah felt it most. If she had been, indeed, a real dove, with a real kite, hanging over her in the air, she could have not have been more frightened or more affected by the terror this created. Of course, some of those already drawn into the vortex noticed the effect on individuals. Those who were interested took care to compare their information. Strangely enough, as it seemed to the others, the person who took the ghastly silence least to heart was the negro. By nature he was not sensitive to, or afflicted, by nerves. This alone would not have produced the seeming indifference, so they set their minds to discover the real cause. Adam came quickly to the conclusion that there was, for him, some compensation that the others did not share, and he soon believed that the compensation was in one form or another the enjoyment of the suffering of others. Thus the black had a never-failing source of amusement. Lady Arabella's cold nature rendered her immune to anything in the way of pain or trouble concerning others. Edgar Caswall was far too haughty a person, and too stern of nature to concern himself about poor and helpless people, much less the lower order of mere animals. Mr. Watford, Mr. Sultan, and Sir Nathaniel were all concerned in the issue, partly from kindness of heart, for none of them could see suffering, even of wild birds, unmoved, and partly on account of their property, which had to be protected, or ruin would stare them in the face before long. Leah suffered acutely. As time went on, her face became pinched, and her eyes dull with watching and crying. Mimi suffered, too, on account of her cousin's suffering. But as she could do nothing, she resolutely made up her mind to self-restraint and patience. Adam's frequent visits comforted her. End of chapter 10 The Kite Recording by Joshua Paul Johnson